Second Samuel is where we're at. We're going to look at chapter 22 in its entirety, and then there's the first couple of verses of chapter 23 this morning. So please grab a Bible. It'll be, you'll be helped by having that open this morning. We're going to talk about the king's song. What do you do with songs? You sing them, right? Or hum them. Uh, some of you are hummers, right? I didn't plan this, but we talked about this in staff meeting this last week. We have a hummer in our office, and I'll leave it up to you to decide who that is. You probably have a hummer in your house, right? Early morning hummer, some of you? We've got one in our house. I, I really enjoy it. But do you like to sing? You know, I, I look around uh, during time of worship, um, and, and I look at others when they're singing. You, you guys know that's okay, right? It's one of the reasons why we curve the chairs on purpose, okay, so that you sing to one another, all right? So worship in the Sunday morning isn't just this personal experience, just you and God. You know, that's why we leave the lights on, because it's, we're gathered to, to, to worship, so we're gathered to sing. You know, the Scripture says we're to sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So, so it's okay to look at one another because you're singing to one another and to the Lord when we gather to worship. So I would encourage you to do that. But as I looked around, there's a few people that don't sing. Yeah, you just looked at me right now. Y'all were down and you just looked up. I saw it. And, and, and I'm just curious why. I'm not, no judgment here. I'm just curious as to why. Why don't, why don't some sing? Some maybe think it's, they don't they can't carry a tune or they don't enjoy singing. Um, some teenage boys think it's not cool to sing. I was there once. But we came this morning to worship, right? That's why we gathered this morning. Perhaps we forgot that. This is a worship service, and part of our worship service is filled with singing, just part of it. Singing to one another and to God is very part very important part of the Christian life. And the New Testament implies that our gathered singing on Sunday is important. It's been said that Christians are a singing people, but I wonder if many of us are a mouthing along with the words kind of people. Is that true of our church? Are, are we a singing people? Did you know that congregational singing was a major part of and focus of the Reformation 500 years ago? Martin Luther was very concerned with preaching and with congregational singing. He believed that a truly biblical church would be one where every believer was actively participating in the worship service, especially the singing. He said this, let God speak directly to his people through the scriptures and let the people respond with grateful songs of praise. Worship through song was vitally important for Luther and for the Reformation as they sought to turn the church back to the Lord. And even more important for his predecessor, who, fought, who came before him, Jan Hus. Hus was actually martyred, among other things, for speaking of the heresy of congregational singing. He was killed because he preached that we should sing together as a congregation. He went before the Council of Constance, and there he was condemned a heretic. And he was led about a kilometer outside of the city and martyred by burning at the stake because he taught that we should sing together. That's how important singing is to the church. That's how important it was to the Reformation. 
So shouldn't singing be as important to us when we gather as the church? You know, this, the text this morning in chapter 22 primarily is about worship. It's about singing. And, and I think as a church family, we have room to grow in our singing. As Christians, we're to be a singing people. That's how God created us. We sing together when we gather, and that informs then our, our living, our singing during the week. And the Psalms teach us this truth over and over. And, and do you know who the lead singer is in the Psalms? Who wrote most of the Psalms? David. The main character of our book here in 2 Samuel. He is the lead singer. This general, this fighter, this warrior, this king was a singer. The manliest man you can think of enjoyed singing to the Lord. He wrote so many songs that we have in the Psalter. He wrote those songs and, and he wasn't ashamed of it. He wrote most of the Psalms as songs from his life. Do you know that you and I, we all write songs with our lives right now? We're actually writing a song by how we think and how we live. What are the lyrics of your song right now? Have you thought about that lately? If you were to put pen to paper of the thoughts that you think or the words that you say, what are the lyrics of your song right now? Is it, I hate my job. My kids wear me out. Why do they get up so early? My car's so old, I wish I had a new one. My friends don't really care about me. When's my life going to get better? When am I going to get a better job? I sure hope mom and dad get the right Christmas gift and don't blow it this year. Are those the lyrics of your life right now? Let me ask this. If God were to take all of the thoughts and the words you said this week and put it to paper and give it to us to sing on Sunday, would you be proud or ashamed? Would you want the lyrics of your life to be sung as a gathered church? You know, a lot of the songs we sing as a church are from the Psalms and they're from David's life. They're the lyrics of his life, and we sing those. So, friend, would you want the lyrics of your life to be sung for all to hear on a Sunday morning? Would you like us to sing together? Where would God be in the lyrics of your life? Who, who really is the main character in the lyrics of your life? Is it, is it you and the issues that you have, or is it God and who he has and what he's done? And I'm not just asking those questions of you, I'm asking them of myself as well. Do I want the lyrics of my life sung on a Sunday morning? Now this morning we, we come close to the end of this book and we look at the King's Song, chapter 22, and we'll see what it, what it looks like for Christians to sing the lyrics of their life. And, and we read that God is the central character in the lyrics of David's song. And Lord willing, we'll learn to sing like David here does. So here's the main idea. As Christians, we sing of God's rescue, his faithfulness, his salvation, his covenant with his people. And we'll see that in the text here. So four points, we should sing of God's rescue, sing of God's faithfulness, his salvation, and his covenant. And we'll see that as we walk through that, and um, we'll read each section 
here as we walk through. This is the end of, of David's writing, essentially, the end of his life, his song and his last words. And, and, and I, I hope it'll be a challenge to us to sing similar songs of our life, of a deliverance of what God has done for us. And I pray that we'll be stretched as we walk through these, these verses. So number one, we should sing of God's rescue. Look at chapter 22. We're going to read verses 1 through 20 and then walk through those. Chapter 22, verse 1. And David spoke to the Lord the words of the song in the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of shale entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called upon the Lord, to my God I called. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked, the foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy, thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. David begins this chapter by sharing the song of the Lord's deliverance in his life of all the battles and, and the wars that he experienced. And this is really a reflective song, looking back over the, the long saga of a life that he's lived for God. And right off the bat, at the beginning, David begins to praise the Lord for his protection of him. Did you notice how many times David uses the word my there at the beginning, the possessive determinator? The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my refuge, my shield, my salvation, my stronghold, my Savior. That David has a personal relationship with God. And he doesn't talk about God in some abstract way, disconnected from his life. No, God is personally involved in David's life and he expresses it in these words in this song. And so, friend, in in order to say what what David says for your song, you must also possess a personal relationship with God yourself. Do you have a personal relationship with God? Amen. Not just a passing understanding of who he is, but do you intimately know him? Has God rescued you from sin? Is that the lyric of your life right now? Friend, if you've never turned from your sins and to turn and trust in Jesus Christ, today is a day of salvation. And I, and I implore you to turn from your way of living thinking you are enough and turn to Christ who bore your sins on the cross so that you can have salvation. I encourage you to 
to place your faith. Come find me, one of the pastors after the service. We'd love to talk to you more about this. But David knew his God intimately. And he expresses it so clearly here at the beginning of this song. And then verse 5, for the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me. We learn as we read through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, the option of death was a daily option for for David. It's a daily possibility. From the early days when he was uh, shepherding the flock and fending off lions to the the years that he ran from his father-in-law, Saul, to, to the time he ran away from his son, Absalom. David knew that death was chasing him and that it would eventually catch up with him. But God would always answer his calls for help. Do you notice how David calls out and then cries? Prayer grows in passion as it continues to happen in our lives. David's prayer life shows us how we are to live in this world. He's an example for us of what it looks like to pray. But as we, as we go down through this passage here that I read, and we, as we come to verse 8, we begin to ask, when did this ever happen to David in his life? At least that's the question I ask. When, when did verse 8 and all following happen? Is he just being dramatic or is he being poetic? Well, I think it's poetry, the second option, and, and, and is helped by some, some commentaries. I believe David is sharing imagery here that we've seen in, in the prior Old Testament, primarily in the Exodus. You remember the Exodus when God delivered Moses and Israel from Egypt and brought them safely to the promised land? I think that's what David is expressing here of his God and what he's done already. Charles Spurgeon explained this. He said in his commentary of, of Psalm 18, by the way, this psalm here, Psalm 22, uh, 2 Samuel 22, is also Psalm 18. It's in both there. It's pretty close. But in Spurgeon, in his commentary in the Psalms, says this, David has in his mind's eye the glorious manifestations of God in Egypt at Sinai and on different occasions to Joshua and the judges. And he considers that his own case exhibits the same glory of power and goodness and that therefore he may accommodate the descriptions of former displays of the majesty into his own hymn of praise. David looks back into what God has done already with God's people and he's expressing it here in a poetic form. Yes, a general, a warrior, writes poetry. Poetry's manly, okay? Write that down somewhere. It's not a bad thing, although I'm not a poet. I've tried. You don't want to read any of that. It is a good way to express what God has done, and David does it beautifully. I mean, David could have simply said, he could have just cut to the point, right? God delivered me, which would have been true, wouldn't have been false. So why didn't he do that? Well, because that doesn't have the same effect for us to understand the magnificence of God delivering his people from danger. It's as if you were um, in the past in a serious car accident and you know, the car was totaled. You don't just come and say, yeah, I was in a car accident. I'm good now. But if it was a, a life and death situation, you were expressing the details of how God rescued you. you. You go through those details and that's what we see here in David's, is David's song here. How the, how the Lord stepped in to save him. He's teaching us this is what God has done for him and this is what God has done for his people in history. And then he continues to do. See, David doesn't merely want to tell us the sheer facts of the Lord's deliverance for him. He wants us to sense it. He wants us to feel it like he does. David wants us to see God in all of his splendor and majesty. 
He doesn't want to just give simple facts. He, he wants you to understand the full magnitude of the saving fury of God for His people. Once, years ago in Philadelphia, a man asked George Whitfield, who was a preacher, if he might print his sermons on a page for others. And when Whitfield responded, well, I have no inherent objection, if you like, but you'll never be able to put on the printed page the lightning and the thunder. You had to be there, essentially, right? You had to experience what's happening. And, and David's putting this on paper, but, but really, we understand this when we go through it, when we've experienced it, Right? And where does, where does David go in the midst of his distress in this section? He goes to the Lord in prayer. See, I think we discount prayer so much. Probably because for all of us, prayer is hard. But prayer is a mighty thing for the Christian. Prayers have shaken houses, opened prison doors, make strong hearts quake. Prayer rings the alarm bell and the master of the house arises to rescue his people. A trustful Christian, a growing Christian is going to go to God in prayer. And when they do, it turns the table on their enemies. What we read here in this section and throughout the scriptures is God is never at a loss for, his, for weapons to fight for his people, for his Christians. And nothing makes God so angry as injuries done to his children. Prayer works, friends. <coughs> Excuse me. The last thing I want you to notice in just this section here is the connection of, of what we read here in David's song to Hannah's song from 1 Samuel chapter 2. I'll read it. You can look there if you want, but 1 Samuel chapter 2 is when Hannah is praying to the Lord. She says, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bowels of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. See, Hannah foresaw specifically how God would bring salvation to his people by means of a king. And so she says, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. God's mighty saving grace coming to his people through the mighty righteous rule of a king. And David saw the same of himself in God's election. He says that in verse 20 here in our chapter. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. David wants us to understand the relief of rescue that he felt when the Lord intervened in his life. Free grace lies at the foundation of our spiritual lives. If we go deep enough, sovereign grace is the truth that lies at the bottom of every well of, of mercy for us. And verse 20 tells us of God's favor for his elect, for those that he has chosen. And he reflects his covenantal love for his own people. God saves us. God draws us because he delights in us. That's an amazing thought, isn't it now? Because he delighted in us. And if we keep reading, though, of the, of the Bible, we learn that Hannah's prayer was not, not really fully answered in David. Yet, yet it, was, it was looking to David, but not fully understood in David. And we come to the New Testament, and we come to the Song of Mary that was read earlier. 
And it's a true fulfillment of what was only typified in David's rule as king. What we heard earlier, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And so what we read in chapter 22 of 2 Samuel, we see the connection to Hannah's prayer, and then we see the connection to Mary's prayer in Luke chapter 1. And we begin to see that all of this is ultimately pointing not to David as the fulfillment of this king, but he's pointing to the true king. And who is that? It's that Sunday school answer that it's really good. Jesus Christ, always pointing to him. He is the one who came to rescue us. He is the one. He is the, the, the king, the promised one. Christmas is, is a rescue mission, okay, for God uh, to bring his people to live with him. We see that so clearly. And so does, as we look at this, as we, should we sing of, of God's rescue? Is that part of the lyrics of our life? Do we think of that? Do we sing of that during the week? Does our song speak of God's magnificent saving of us, or are we too misguided, or we just forget this week of what God has done? That's point number one. Point number two, we should sing of God's faithfulness. I think, I hope you're challenged about the lyrics of your life, singing of God's rescue, but what about His faithfulness? Are we eager to sing about God's fidelity to us and faithfulness to us? Look at verse 21. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. With the merciful you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man you show yourself blameless. With the purified you deal purely, and with the crooked you make yourself seem torturous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against any troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. At first reading, at first glance, David's testimony and his verses can be kind of confusing to us because we know that David failed. It's so in your face in this book, right, of how David did not live this way. And yet it's been clear in this, in this book that he's repentant toward his great sins. And so he's, he's hardly claiming perfection here. So what is he trying to communicate in this section of the song? He's really talking about his overall fidelity to the Lord, his faithfulness to God. He has not, after all, committed apostasy. He hasn't turned back his, his back to the Lord. He has failed. He has sinned, yes, but he has repented, and he's still following the Lord. The word blameless there in verse 24 translated doesn't mean sinlessness, but wholeness, a completeness, and integrity. So he isn't, com- he isn't claiming perfection in life, but a wholeheartedness in life's commitment to follow the Lord. David is simply pointing out that God blesses people who continue to commit themselves to, the, to a life of walking with the, with the Lord. 
See, David's overall life was characterized by a covenant faithfulness to the Lord, including, including his willingness to repent and seek forgiveness when he sinned. And David displays for us that it's impossible for us as humans to be perfect, and yet it's very possible for us to live a repentant life of faithfulness to the Lord. That's what he seeks. He says, I I have not wickedly departed from my God. David had ample opportunities to respond and like to those that that surrounded him and sinned against him, but but he didn't engage in sinful, self-serving strategies, but he trusted himself ultimately to God by faith through faith and through prayer. And and the principle we learn from this is that God blesses those who continue to follow him. It's a simple idea, really. God delivers those that follow him. He says there, and the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my sight. God first gives us holiness, and then he rewards us for having it. You understand that? We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. He rewards us, but the prize is like that prize given to the best flower at a garden show, right? If the best flower wins, the, the, the gardener is the one that brought the growth, but who, does get, who gets the reward? Who gets the little plaque? The flower does, right? The flower did nothing but grow. It was the gardener that brought the growth. It's the same with us. He's rewarded us according to our righteousness, but he is the one that has given it to us. He is the one who created us and allowed us to do that. He is the one that should be honored in that way. And David has kept his ways. He's kept himself. He's stayed by the Lord, and yet God never departs from his people. We need to understand that as Christians. Christians, true Christians, don't depart from the Lord. They stay with him. Friend, if you're here this morning and you you sense that God is no longer there, you you need to realize that God is not the one who moved. You have. And so this morning, in God's grace, turn back and continue to follow him and follow what his word says in obedience to that. Well, this last section here, David is talking about the four virtues that he lists there in 26 to 28, mercifulness and and moral blamelessness, and purity, and humility. It's not an exhaustive list for Christians, but it's something for us to to take note of. For those that have mercy towards others, God shows himself merciful to them. For those that are blameless in their integrity and commitment to the Lord, he's blameless in his commitment to them, and so on. This is even seen in a different structure in the New Testament. David's list of virtues with blessings foreshadows Jesus' beatitudes that we see in the Gospels. Ultimately, though, what what we see, if if God didn't bring us to the end of ourselves, we would continue to trust in ourselves and not in God. And so God brings to us impossible situations where there's no human way out so that we would not trust in ourselves and that we would trust in Him alone. God brings us low so that we would see our need for Him. And then God comes through for the believer. He is our lamp. Or our candle, as, as, uh, as David says, in the midst of darkness. Spurgeon said of this, candles that are lit by God cannot be blown out by Satan. The Lord does this. In verse 31, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. 
Those of us who faithfully follow the Lord and hold up His Word to obey and apply it to our lives, we can expect God to bless us. And for those who don't, they cannot expect that. There are many even perhaps seated here this morning who follow the Lord when it's only convenient for them. They have no ongoing commitment to the Lord in their life. They only desire His input when things aren't going well. They don't seek after God. They only seek after a bomb shelter. Friends, following the Lord is more than making a decision at camp when you were a kid. It is an ongoing decision day in and day out. It is ongoing recognizing that you are following Him today. And we will fail. You just will. But that's what it looks like to follow the Lord. Daily decision and following Him. So are you singing of God's faithfulness in your life today? Has that come into your mind this week? Of God's faithfulness, that He will not leave you nor forsake you. That He is with you, friends. Well, third, and we're moving around here, moving through, we should sing of God's salvation. Look at verse 32. For who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure in the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation. Your gentleness made me great. You gave me a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them. I did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they do not rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with the strength for the, for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, those who hated me, I, and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from the strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortress. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above, all, above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Right at the bat there, David really challenges heaven and earth. Anyone to, to answer, is anyone else worthy of adoration like our Lord? Is anyone? Can we find anyone? And then David then continues to repeat how the Lord had been with him in his life. He just gives his life story and what God has done for him as king. And then we see at the end of verse 33 that God has made my way blameless. And so we can see now the answer to the puzzling questions that we might have had earlier about David's innocence. It was the Lord. It was God who, not David, who made him blameless. It was God who did this. And, and God made him a great warrior too. And God answered his pleas and cries for help. And what we see in this whole long section is David was acting as God's agent against God's enemies, against God's people. They wouldn't prevail if God was against them, and they would be destroyed through the Lord's anointed king, David. 
And there's a great difference between David and his enemies. We see throughout this book, and, and even in 1 Samuel, when David calls out to the Lord, he answers. But with those who don't follow the Lord cry out, there is no answer. And this is a warning for us. It's a warning for you this morning, friends. For, for those that think they can just do just fine in life, if they're not following the Lord, it's not true. God is under no obligation to answer your prayers if you have rejected him. We also need to remember, I thought this was interesting in this passage, at the very height of David's reign, he was, he was only um, serving over a small Middle Eastern empire. But he says here in this passage that he was head of the nations. It says there in verse 44. So, so what does he mean there? That David was head over the nations. Is he so full of himself here? Has his head become bloated as king? Hey, I'm, I'm head over everyone. It's not true. It's not what happened. So what's the meaning? Well, I believe David understands that there is one that will follow him and he'll be the one where all the promises that he's saying here will be fully realized. And this song here of David makes complete sense when we understand that it is only fitting that Jesus Christ is the one who rules over all. He is the son of David who is everything that David failed to be. Jesus, like David, was threatened with destruction and it cultivated in a cross. Like David, he called upon God and his father through distress. And the father finally answered by crushing death and raising his son to, to life. Jesus is the perfectly righteous, blameless, pure, faithful, merciful one. He is the Lord to whom all authority in heaven and earth has been given. And the news of his kingdom is going to the nations of the world. God's kingdom ultimately rests on God's promises, and they will be fulfilled fully. Friends, we serve a living God. He isn't dead. He isn't dying. He has immortality, and he's coming again for his people. I don't know about you, but I needed that reminder today. But are we singing of that in our lives? Is that in the lyrics of, of what's happening in our lives, remembering again of his faithfulness? and his salvation, great salvation through Jesus Christ. Is that a part of our lyrics in our life? Well, at last, we should sing of God's covenant. This is, as you'll see, is the, the last words. Your Bible says that probably there as a heading. The last words of David, the last public words of David. I found this interesting in a, in a commentary, so I wanted to share. Before Thomas Hogg died in 1692, the Scotsman charged his congregation at Kiltern to dig his grave at the threshold of the church building where he might act as a silent guard against any unworthy minister who might follow him. I have a new agenda item for the elder meeting coming up. The inscription of the tombstead read this. This stone shall bear witness against the parishioners of Kiltern if they bring in any ungodly minister here. I think it's great. Those were his last words. We're fascinated with last words of people, aren't we? Well, maybe just me. 
Jan Hus, as I read earlier, had some very important last words as well. He declared that he would die trusting in the gospel that he proclaimed and taught. That he told his executioners that they could come burn the goose. His surname means goose in Czech. But a hundred years later, a swan would come whom they wouldn't be incapable of killing. He wasn't perfect in his prediction. He was close. 102 years later, Martin Luther came onto the scene and nailed his 95 thesis to the castle church door to start this debate about what the Bible taught and where salvation was found. And in that, we find out that God is faithful to his covenant, to his people. God is faithful. So let's listen here to David's last recorded speech, 2 Samuel 23. Let's read just verses 1 through 4 now. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of God, of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. David's in his mid to late 60s at this point. So imagine with me an old man's voice saying these words as he's reigned as king for 40 years. He's giving to us a picture of what ruling should look like, what authority should look like in our lives one who rules justly and in the fear of God. And how does David picture this ruler? Verse 4, this ruler is like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. This ruler is like brightness after the rain that gives grass to sprout and growth on earth. Just ponder those images for a moment. Light itself is attractive to us. We are drawn to it. Right, especially as we get into winter, right? When you're leaving for work in the morning, it's dark and you can begin to see the sunrise. It's, it's attractive to us. We're, we're drawn to it. Have you ever seen the, the warm light that bounces off the grass after a, a rain? It's refreshing. It's, it's hopeful as we look at it. And, and yet there's still something so very unique in the morning about seeing a sunrise, if you've ever been to Hawaii, one of the things you've got to see is a morning sunrise. It is gorgeous. You're willing to get up early morning to go see it. And there's something that's just unique about that. And it's hopeful. It's not simply the morning light, though. It's really the, morning, the fresh morning light at sunrise and this cloudless morning that he says. Right? Have you seen a sunrise? Can you picture one in your mind right now? This is what David says authority used well looks like. The excitement, the attractiveness, the sense of hope and the sense of awe that you feel in that image. And that should be seen, that should be understood when others rule in righteousness, when they rule justly and in the fear of God. I mean, how amazing that leadership truly is. Really, good leadership is, is godlike. 
Have we ever, have you really realized, for those that have authority, and there's many people here that have authority in different ways, you realized how powerful the witness that we can have when, he, when we use our authority well? Do you think of your authority that way? For my friends that are parents here and have kids in your home, do you understand the opportunity that we have to show our children what God is like by how we use our authority? We are teaching our kids that authority and really God's authority in particular can be trusted and that he uses it for our good and not for his selfishness. Husbands in the home and friends who hold authority positions at work or students who who are in leadership positions at school, do you realize the opportunity that you have to be a display, a witness to God and how you use your authority? When you rule over others in righteousness, when you rule and deal justly in, in the fear of God, you are using your authority like light at sunrise on a cloudless morning. That's what it should look like. This is not just written to church leaders, although it is. This is written to everyone that has some sort of authority. You own a company and how you reflect your authority to your your employees, it should look like this, David says. But even more so in the church. So my, my brother, pastors and elders here, when God has given us authority in his church, do we remember how this authority that it shows people who, who, what God is like. We, 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 we do that by how we use the authority he's given us. We regularly have opportunities to show the members of our church, members that we will be held accountable for one day as we stand before God, to show them a picture of good authority for their good and for, for the church's growth and for the glory of God. What an awesome responsibility that we have. And so I want to encourage us for everyone here that has some sort of authority to to use it well, to come back to this passage, to what David says here, and to picture it that way. Would those that you serve over in authority, would they say that of your authority? You know, if if you are the boss at work in some way, when you come into the room, do people want to leave? Because it's not a, a bright sunrise that he, they're here or it's a dark cloud that's coming. I'm in, encouraged and, and convicted in this and the authority that God has given me. And I praise the Lord for all the privileges that we have to use authority. And I pray that we would use it well for God's glory. And I pray that we can be faithful in those positions that God has given us. See, David sought to use his authority well. But ultimately, he speaks of the one who always uses his authority well. He speaks of God. And, God, and David speaks of God's covenant with him and his faithfulness to his promises. Look at verse 5, just 5 through 7. That's where we'll end here this morning. For does not my house stand so with God? For he made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure, for he will not cause 
to prosper all my help and my desire, but worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. David here speaks in verse 5 so much as, as a man who has hope. These last words of David are at the end of a very long life, and he, and, and he isn't wiped out by the world. He's hopeful of what God will do for him and, and for his kingdom after he's gone. And he, and he sings, really, he, he displays again of God's covenant with him and with his people. And we should sing of God's covenant with us. It's an everlasting hope that will not fail. You know, we should sing of how great our God is and believe it. You know, these last words of David here are gospel words. The hope of the world and the hope of the church is the promise of the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ is the promised righteous one. And so we need to trust in him and follow him. So I pray that as we leave this place today that that the lyrics of our lives will, will have an adjustment this week and that we'll praise God for who he is and what he's done and we'll think of the rescue that he's done in our lives and his faithfulness to us and his salvation for us and his great salvation through Jesus Christ and the incredible covenant promises that he's given us in him. So I pray that we'll be encouraged in that. Would you join me in prayer as we end? Father, we we thank you this morning that we could gather. We we thank you that we can sing again here as we end our time as as a church family. But I do pray that that your word would sink deep within our hearts. May we be gospel and Bible people. I pray that the lyrics of our lives would come under scrutiny of, of you, our King, and that you would change our hearts to be rightly aligned with you this morning. Father, may we all be singers, faithfully proclaiming the glorious gospel of your Son and what you've done for us. I pray that as we leave this place that we would we would use well the authority that you have given us in the different positions in, our, in the world. May people see and understand who we follow and who we're trusting in by how we act and how we talk, but also by the gospel that we preach. So we pray that you give us boldness and, and clarity and discernment in how we share that and how we go about that. I pray that that would be a lyric of our life that we would be unashamed of. But I pray you would open up opportunities. Pray, God, that you would help us as a church, that we'd go out and be faithful to you. We thank you that you forgive us when we fail. Help us to be repentant people that seek your face when we've walked away from you or we've chosen sin above you. May we not continue in that, but when we turn back to you to follow you. We thank you for your, your continued mercy and grace in our lives to receive us back. Now we pray that as you, we leave this place that we would go and honor you in all things. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.